The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Um, he has said that he sees only three possible futures for himself, prison, death, or victory. And in my opinion, he continues to act as if he genuinely believes that to be true. So, you know, I have said and written that I think that Bolsonaro will do everything in his power to contest and potentially try to overturn the result should Lula win either in the first round or the second round of these elections in October. The hitch, though, is that in the last few weeks, this, again, depending on the polls, looking at the polls, the margin has not narrowed in the way that many of us expected it to. Put a different way, I think it's much, much easier for Bolsonaro to contest, say, a three-point loss than a six-point loss, much less a 10-point loss. And if it gets into those, some, those bigger numbers, I suspect even he will see the writing on the wall and start looking for another way out of his situation. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 27th, 2022. In just under a week, on October 2nd, Brazil will hold the first round of its general election, which will determine the country's next president. To talk through all things Brazilian politics, I sat down with Brian Winter, Editor-in-Chief of America's Quarterly, and a journalist with over a decade living and reporting across Latin America. We discussed the leading candidates, Jair Bolsonaro and Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, the potential election crisis, and what's at stake as Brazilians head to the polls on Sunday. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 27th. Brian Winter on the imminent election crisis in Brazil. Brian, as you very well know, there's an election coming up in Brazil. So I want to ask first if all of Brazil as a stage, who are the main players and what do they represent? Well, there's two main players in this election. There's the incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro. He, I'm sure, is well known to part of your audience, called in some quarters the Trump of the tropics, uh, has presided over Brazil for the last four years. Very difficult period that included not only the pandemic, but difficult economy and some constant institutional tensions as he you know, lashed out against media, um, the Supreme Court, and parts of the international community. Uh, and then the other big protagonist in this election is Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, uh, who was president of Brazil uh, a long time ago, actually, now, from 2003 to 2010. That was a golden age of a kind for Brazil. There was a period when a lot of people came out of poverty uh, and into the middle class when the economy did well. But 
it was largely due to a commodities boom that was led by China and that led to, you know, positive growth and a lot of these same trends in other countries throughout Latin America and the world. And so there are a lot of misgivings, um, even among some Lula supporters, as to whether he would be able to replicate that magic uh, if he is elected again in this election at the age of, well, well into his late 70s. Great. And as you mentioned, something interesting about this election is that both of the leading candidates uh, have both been uh, presidents before. Of course, one is the incumbent. So given that, what are their main policies that they are pushing for this election? And how do they differ, if anything, from their respective administrations? Well, neither has gone into huge detail about what they plan to do for, I think, for different reasons. Lula has answered some questions about his plans, but he he tends to say, in fact, to read a quote from him, he said, you have to understand that instead of asking what I'm going to do, you just have to look at what I did. And so he's really saying, look at my past record. I was good with social programs. Uh, I was fiscally responsible as well. Everybody kind of won under my presidency, everybody from the banks and sort of big business to multinational corporations, and of course, uh, the working class in Brazil, which which saw huge gains. But again, the concern is that he may be underestimating the difficulty of an external scenario, which is going to be much more difficult should he be elected and take office on New Year's Day 2023. For for President Bolsonaro, you know, he has not offered a whole lot of detail either on the economic front, especially, but I think that we can expect a mix of conservative economic policies, you know, ostensibly market-friendly policies. The reason I'm tripping over this a bit is because while he has a very business-friendly face to his administration, in practice, the last four years have not been that great for Brazilian business, in part because of the constant um, disorganization and conflict that has characterized his four years in power. So, you know, it's interesting. I I, I have uh, a lot of contacts in the business world in Brazil, as well as here in the United States. And, you know, on paper, these guys should all be with Bolsonaro. But in reality, they're pretty split because they say, you know, the Bolsonaro years have been kind of a mess um, with a president who, in their telling or in their words, has often been more concerned about whether boys should wear blue and girls should wear pink, um, to quote a famous quote from his women's affairs minister, than issues like tax reform, uh, for example. So in practice, it's a, it's a, it's a more muddied scenario. Yeah, it's a great quote from from Lula, who, as you mentioned, is entreating people to look at what he did. In addition to, to what you mentioned during Bolsonaro's tenure, what else would someone find if, if you looked at what, what he did in the, in, you know, in the past four years? Well, it, it's been a difficult four years for Brazil. Uh, Brazil has lost more than 670,000 people to the COVID-19 pandemic. Brazil is, of course, the world's fifth largest country. So 
Um, but even if you look at those numbers on a per capita basis, Brazil, at least last I checked the Johns Hopkins database, was in the world's 20 worst countries when it came to deaths per capita. And it's interesting. The economy in Brazil has started to recover a bit over the last couple months. And there was an expectation that that would be reflected in the polls. I mean, this is what we usually see in countries around the world when unemployment's coming down. And even unlike the United States, inflation has started to get a bit better in Brazil. And yet, again, if you believe the polls, Bolsonaro's numbers have not really improved. And he still trails in this election uh, by between six to 12 points, depending on which poll you look at, to Lula. One theory for this is that the memory of the pandemic is still very strong. And this is a leader who I, I think it's very fair to say denied science, underestimated, downplayed the value of the vaccine, uh, talked about you know supposed cures that, that have that did not prove effective. You know, it's a similar story to, what happened uh, in 2020 when Trump was still president here in the United States. And I think that there's polling as well as kind of anecdotal evidence. I'm, I travel often to Brazil. I'm based now in New York, but I'm often there. And people have not quite forgiven him for his management of the country during that process or the many callous remarks that he made during that time saying things like, when asked about his responsibility for the pandemic, saying things like, I'm not a grave digger and saying that, you know, the country needed to stop being a country of sissies. And these are things that I think people have not forgotten. It's also true that many of these things are not unique to Brazil. It's a difficult time for incumbent governments all over the world. By one count, incumbents in Latin America have lost 13 straight elections. And I, I think, you know, you can. A lot of this does have to do with Bolsonaro. A lot of it does have to do with Brazil. Both are interesting stories. But there's a regional and a global context going on, which is that people all over the world, particularly the Western world, are unhappy right now and dissatisfied with whoever is in power. Right now, that's Jair Bolsonaro, and he's absorbing a lot of that rage. You mentioned, of course, the the recent memory and and you know current situation of of the COVID pandemic. What are some other salient issues for Brazilians specifically, whether it relates to the economy, social issues uh, that they may be voting on? Or, as you mentioned, uh, is this less about platform and, and more about ousting an incumbent? I think that to really understand Brazil right now and to understand this election, you have to go back to the 2000s, which was the era in which Lula was in power. And I've already spoken about what a golden era this was for Brazil. But it's hard even in words to describe how optimistic the country was during that time. I lived in Brazil from 2010 to 2015 as a reporter. And so I caught the tail end of this period and the beginning of the problems that, that showed up in later years. Uh, but, but during the 2000s, which was during Lula's presidency, this was a country where the middle class grew by some 35 million people. Uh, but it also seemed like Brazil had kind of cracked the code and was finally realizing 
the potential that people have long said Brazil has. There's this old, old, tired quote about Brazil that that comes from the author Stefan Zweig, who said, Brazil is the country of the future, and it always will be. And that has captured some of the country's fits and starts in its development over many decades. There was a sense in the 2000s that the future had finally arrived. And then not long after Lula left office in 2010, not long after my arrival, things started to fall apart. And even though Lula was no longer presidency, it, he, it was his handpicked successor who won the 2010 election. This was Dilma Rousseff. And under Rousseff's watch, the country really, really fell apart. Brazil is actually poorer today on a per capita basis than it was 10 years ago. That's an astonishing statistic. And so as we get into the present day, you asked about the issues in this election. It's true that inflation has come down or started to come down. It's true that unemployment is also now below 9%, which makes it the lowest unemployment in Brazil since 2015. But the residual consequences, not only of the pandemic, but of this intense, terrible period of time during the 2010s that followed the years of prosperity are still with the country. And to cite one other statistic, there are an estimated 33 million Brazilians in a country of some 210 million who are suffering from some degree of hunger. And in a country where there was at least the idea that that was, that was part of the past. So I, I think it's a country that, that lived through its, its bonanza years which were then followed by extreme difficulty. I mean, a, an imperfect parallel would be the 20s versus the 30s, uh, you know, the, in the last century um, here in the United States, and is now trying to find its way again. And the polls tell us that a majority of Brazilians, at least uh, for now, think that electing the guy who oversaw those boom years is the right way to try to do it. And I'm sure there's an old adage somewhere cautioning against predicting Brazilian politics. Uh, maybe Stefan Zweig has another nugget there. But I'm going to ask you to do just that. Um, if you could game out a few of what you think are the most likely scenarios in the election, and and I'd ask you just to, to talk about the election for now, because I definitely want to go into uh, what may come after, which I think is the, the biggest question facing many people right now. But how do you see this election going? Can we put a lot of stock in, in the polls that, that Lula is, has a, quite a comfortable lead? The record of polling in Brazil is quite good. There is some kind of Bolsonaro myth-making to the contrary. But actually, if you look at the big polls, they have been quite accurate over the years. By the time Election Day came around in 2018, they, they predicted Bolsonaro's margin of victory pretty accurately. And those same polls are now telling us that Lula has a very steady lead of between, again, like I said, six, 10 percentage points, maybe a bit more. As a matter of fact, I mean, in some ways, this has been a very boring campaign. I say that not, I mean, there's been plenty of controversy and plenty of heat and light, but the numbers themselves and the main players have not moved that much. There was some speculation that perhaps a third party candidate could uh, make waves, um, maybe someone kind of in the center, center right space. But that really hasn't happened. There's another candidate named Ciro Gomez 
kind of on the center, center left, who has captured some of the anti-Lula vote that doesn't want to vote for Bolsonaro, but not in a way that has made any material difference in this race. The race between Lula and Bolsonaro has also been somewhat steady. I mean, the gap has closed by a statistically significant amount since since March of this year. But that was probably always going to happen as more Brazilians started paying attention to this election, which is all to say, I think that the base scenario still has to be a Lula victory by a fairly comfortable margin. It is the year 2022. We have seen other countries where the polling has gotten it completely wrong. And so I am constantly reminding myself of the need to not take polls as gospel. When I was last in Brazil earlier this month, I heard one pollster himself say that he believed that the margin in Lula's favor might only be half what his own poll showed um, because he believed that Bolsonaro voters uh, might be, for different reasons, either afraid or shy about sharing their true intentions. Um, essentially because they believe that uh, the other institutions in Brazil are, are against them. Uh, so that's a, a, a key Bolsonaro talking point. But I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I still think that at the end of the day, the, the most likely scenario is a Lula victory uh, of between mm, five and 10 points uh, in the first round. And then if there's a second round, uh, which it seems likely at this point, that that Bolsonaro would lose by about 10 points. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So if we, if we take the polls, as you said, uh, which indicate Lulu wins, what happens then? Uh, you've mentioned in one of your articles, uh, you've called it, there could be an imminent election crisis Bernie Sanders, along with some moderate Democrats, have also raised alarms of a potential coup. What are people afraid of happening after the election, of a Lula victory in particular? Well, Bolsonaro has made no secret of his intentions uh, with this election. He has said that he does not believe in the integrity of Brazil's electronic voting system. Uh, He has said that he will only accept a result that he deems to be auditable, which means he wants a paper 
copy essentially of each vote. That will not happen. Brazil's Congress voted in 2021 not to modify the current electronic system. He has also described Lula not just as an opponent, but as a illegitimate, a quote unquote, criminal threat who, open quote, can only win via fraud, end quote. And then finally, with regards to how Bolsonaro himself appears to see this election, um, he has said that he sees only three possible futures for himself, prison, death, or victory. And in my opinion, he continues to act as if he genuinely believes that to be true. So, you know, I have said and written that I think that Bolsonaro will do everything in his power to contest and potentially try to overturn the result should Lula win either in the first round or the second round of these elections in October. The hitch, though, is that in the last few weeks, this, again, depending on the polls, looking at the polls, the margin has not narrowed in the way that many of us expected it to. Put a different way, I think it's much, much easier for Bolsonaro to contest, say, a three-point loss than a six-point loss, much less a 10-point loss. And if it gets into those, some, those bigger numbers, I suspect even he will see the writing on the wall and start looking for another way out of his situation. What would a Bolsonaro coup attempt or failure to transfer power look like? What are some some options? And then on the flip side of that, what safeguards are in place uh, in Brazil in terms of institutions, legal or otherwise? Brazil is a country, well, to state the obvious, it's a big country. (laughs) And this is important because it's a country where power is actually quite diffuse. And if you've been to Brasilia and stood in the middle of this very strange planned city, and you see all the different government buildings, you see the Supreme Court and all these regulatory bodies and the Congress, and the presidential palace occupies just kind of a corner of this esplanade of ministries, as it's called. And, you know, it really drives home a larger reality, which is that Brazil is a country of institutions. It's not a particularly old democracy. It only came back to full democracy in 1989, um, following kind of a a four-year transition. Um, 1989 was the first year that they had uh, citizens vote directly for president again, following um, the dictatorship, which ran from 1964 to 1985. It is also a country where institutions in recent years have not worked perfectly, but they do retain their own center of gravity. And so I think in practice, it's it's harder for a, a leader with authoritarian intentions to make a grab for power in Brazil than it is in countries that are smaller and perhaps don't have the same tradition of um, separation of powers that Brazil has managed to build uh, over the last 30 years or so. That said, it's not impossible. And, you know, I've written about this a lot. I have also spoken to people 
who are close to President Bolsonaro. I take a certain pride in having dialogue with with everyone, uh, at least everyone who's willing to talk to me. And you know, it's it's clear to me, even though they don't always say so directly, more or less what the contours of a, a power grab would would look like. Uh, coups or disruptions to democracy in the 21st century, they don't look like they did in the 20th century. We're not going to see, I don't think, tanks rolling through the streets of Brasilia or anywhere else. It's just not how it happens today. I think it would be a more simple scenario that would echo in some ways what uh, Donald Trump attempted to do here uh, in the weeks uh, following the 2020 election. Bolsonaro would uh, declare that the voting process was riddled with irregularities, uh, with fraud. He would likely seize upon a few real examples of either fraud or voting problems. And there are always a few, uh, whether it's here in the United States or in Brazil or anywhere else, there's always incidents with voting machines, um, with people who are on the voter rolls who should not be, uh, and so on. And so I would suspect that he would, and his he and his allies would use those incidents, they would magnify them on social media and elsewhere, and use them as pretext to declare that the election itself was not legitimate. And that's where things get interesting, because it then turns into kind of a power struggle between the crowd who says that the election was illegitimate, and those who say that uh, it worked just fine, more or less. Thank you very much. I would say that most of the institutions in Brazil are on the side of respecting whatever result we see in October, but some of the lines are a bit uh, muddy. And one of the institutions that could, at least in theory, favor Bolsonaro in such a confrontation would be the Brazilian armed forces. And this is a major, major difference between Brazil and the United States. At no moment in 2020 did Donald Trump have at least the senior leadership of the armed forces on his side. Uh, of course, there's no tradition in the United States of the military intervening in day-to-day -day politics or elections. Uh, that tradition does exist in Brazil where, like I said, there's people alive who have memories of the 21 years when the military was in charge, when it was a dictatorship, to just you know, use that word unambiguously. And Bolsonaro has quite cleverly uh, incorporated members of the military, uh, mostly retired, but some active duty as well, um, into his government. His running mate is a retired general. Um, so are some members of his cabinet. And I frankly hear, as far as their intentions in such a scenario, I hear whispers and voices on both sides. There are those who say that the Brazilian military are firmly on the side of democracy and the constitution of 1988. And there are those who say, mm, depending on how things go, um, they could very well take Bolsonaro's side. And this is a major reason why I think that if there is a disputed election, I don't believe that Bolsonaro would be likely to prevail, but things could get very messy. I want to zoom out now beyond Brazil's borders and talk about the stakes of this election for 
for the region, for for the Western Hemisphere, and then and beyond. You know, as you mentioned, I think it is fair to say Brazil is a big country in almost every sense of the word. So, what are the stakes here for for everyone else watching outside of Brazil? Well, I think first of all, what happens in Brazil is very important to the rest of Latin America, a region of some six hundred million people, critical to the rest of the world in every you know in variety of ways from management of the Amazon, uh, which has been a huge issue, massively important to the future of, of climate change. And so that's that one's not just important to the rest of Latin America, it's, it's important to the world. Um, and these are two candidates, Lula and Bolsonaro, who have vastly different ideas on how to manage that challenge. Bolsonaro being more permissive of the kind of development that leads to the destruction of the forest and Lula, who oversaw a 70% um, decline in deforestation rates during his presidency in the 2000s. I think that also, if Lula were to be elected, this would have significant geopolitical implications. You know, Brazil under Bolsonaro has not been unambiguously pro-U.S., nor have they been very, very antagonistic of China. I think they've struck a balance uh, that has been more pro-U.S., but but with nuance. I think if Lula were to be elected, it would also be nuanced. But if you look at this as a spectrum, I think that Brazil would move one or two clicks closer to Beijing in terms of its geopolitical and trading relationships. It's also true that if Brazil was to go left, in, that is, if they were to elect Lula, it would consolidate a trend that we've really seen over the last year, which is a wave of left-leaning presidents in Latin America. There is great diversity within that group, starting with the fact that some of these leftists are dictators, uh, Nicolas Maduro uh, and Daniel Ortega to name two. And some of them are true, I think, shining lights when it comes to a commitment to democracy and institutions. I would include the Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, in that category. But with Lula, I think that the trend toward left of center leaders would be unambiguous. I think that has a variety of implications as well, including the fact that you would have a degree of synchronicity across the region leaders who essentially believe that they're on the same team in some way, shape, or form that could lead to some interesting progress in areas like trade um, and other regional alliances. But, you know, I, I think for, for most of the global community, I think probably the biggest stakes in this Brazil election probably involve the Amazon. And finally here, I'm just curious to hear how you're going to spend election day, how what you'll be watching for, uh, if you have any election day traditions anything like that? Well, I've covered Brazilian elections going all the way back to 2006 as a, uh, a reporter and now in my current capacity as a, a political analyst and columnist. I will probably be here. No, I will definitely be here in the United States, at least for the first round. But, you know, it's, it's easier to be a Brazil expert in the year 2022 than maybe it was 20 or much less 40 years ago. You can watch all the networks online. Uh, you can subject yourself to Twitter uh, if you're feeling brave. 
there's all kinds of ways to try to keep tabs on what's going on. And I'll be talking to all of my contacts there on the ground for what I expect will be a pretty tense day in part because of these concerns over the possibility of an institutional crisis, which are real. And I think which have mobilized a big part of civil society, uh, as well as the international community and the business community as well. None of whom, or at least few of whom have a preference. I don't think that you'll find in the international community you know, an official preference for one candidate or the other, I think what they want to see is is democracy uh, and a respect for rule of law and whatever the election result shows. And as we sit here today, that is in some doubt. So I think all of us are going to be watching very closely to see how things happen in the first round. And then if there is a runoff, you know, it's a country where things get very tense And the last thing we need in today's world where democracy is under stress all over the Western world is a major setback in a country as big and as important as Brazil. So we'll see. Uh, It's going to be one to keep an eye on for sure. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Brazil, land of the future, as uh, Stefan Zweig so so aptly put it decades ago. (laughs) Let's hope so. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.